bring your Bible along as we look at the question of do you know you're bent? I hope you'll come. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, begin reading in verse number 6. Here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 6. Paul writes, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that the faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believed, though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And verse 12, And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Interesting passage of Scripture, and though we read in it several times the reference of circumcision and uncircumcision, the truth of the matter is that would... Um, be only a sideline point of what the passage is about. What the passage really is about is about happiness. Happiness. Happiness and circumcision go together. Well, if you were a baby in the hospital, I doubt that you would, a baby boy, you would doubt, I doubt seriously you'd think that. But the fact of the matter is, in this passage of Scripture, they go side by side. And this blessedness and this circumcision of which he speaks, interestingly, has a parallel. And we'll talk about that as we go through the text. But let me begin by saying this. You do not have to observe too many people, look too far, or notice that there are a lot of people who are just simply not happy out there. I was noticing in a magazine article a few days ago an interesting thing. There was a news note from another state. It said even the bars in some places and in some cases have stopped calling it happy hour because even the booze wasn't making the people cheer up. The fact is that happiness seems harder and harder to find these days, even though it's an unalienable right of Americans. You remember that document? We call it the Declaration of Independence. It has a paragraph, if you recall, in there, and it says in that section, it says, uh, we, we who hold, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Then it goes on down, it says, have certain unalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. You know, did you know that was a pursuit of yours? You have, you have an unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. But it's interesting, all down further in the text, it talks about when governments, you know, don't live up to what the government's supposed to do and it has to be abolished. If you didn't know it, the Declaration of Independence says we have the right to abolish government. You, you may not have been aware of that, but we do. If it gets out of line and it absolutely portrays and betrays what it started out to be, the Declaration of Independence says you can abolish this thing. And, and here's what happens. If you abolish it, then when you reorganize it, make sure, and it goes back in, organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect the safety and happiness of the American people. 
our happiness was a big deal with the founding fathers when they come to put this thing together and they said uh, we want you to be happy we want we want that to be something to which you can uh, have access and direction in which you can go another well-documented fact is that by and large the most unhappy people are the ones who have the largest amount of this world's goods have you noticed that Michael Jackson is the poster boy of this fact I doubt that I have ever seen anybody any time under any condition look any unhappier than the pictures you see of Michael Jackson when he was taken into custody there's something there to be pitied in a person who has accumulated so much and worked so hard apparently for what is evidently going to come crumbling down it's an unhappy kind of thing it's interesting too that in the article I referred to earlier I have a bad habit of reading the newspaper very early in the morning after I've had devotions and if I find something in the newspaper that I think I can use in a sermon I take a pair of scissors and cut that thing out so when my wife comes to read the paper sometimes there are holes in it and she says, what in the world was in here? I said, well, that's an article I'm going to use in the services. Well, that's the case with this one. This was in a corner, so it didn't miss much. In fact, on the backside, it was just an advertisement for the local paper, so it's no big deal. But sometimes it takes out a lot of information. This one is an article came up last week. It says, many in the U.S. still, still in pursuit of happiness. It reads, wishing ourselves a happy new year should be automatic. After all, the United States is the only nation that claims happiness to be a citizen's right. Alas, according to the World database, database of Happiness, we barely make it in the top 10 of the world's industrialized nations in terms of life satisfaction. Overall, the natives are happier in Iceland, in fact, they're number one. The Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, Denmark, Ireland, Belgium, Great Britain, as well as down under in Australia. The problem, as much as we seek it, happiness doesn't just happen. Enter the scientific community which has decided to explore the ingredients in joy. I guess you and I will probably pay for that in a tax-funded grant. The leading expert in the field is an American professor, Martin Seligman of University of Pennsylvania. Seligman believes there are three kinds of happiness. The pleasant life, the joy that comes from eating, from entertainment, the good life which derives from enjoying things you do well, and the meaningful life which consists of devoting yourself to something you believe in. True happiness comes from combining good and meaningful living Seligman dismisses the satisfaction of the senses as merely whipped cream with a cherry on top. Well, we could save them a lot of time if we could simply get them to do what so many before us have done, turn to the only reliable source to find out what happiness is and how it comes about. Before we go further in Romans 4, let me go back unless you and I lay the groundwork so we'll understand what it is. Look, if you would, back in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a great wisdom book, and it tells you much about happiness. Proverbs chapter number 3, for an example to begin with. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 13. Here's what it says. Proverbs 3.13, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. Verse 14, For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. Verse 15, she, now it's 
personifying wisdom. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. What it simply is saying in this context, God is saying by his inspired word that happiness comes from real wisdom, real understanding. People will not be happy just by getting things or getting into circumstances that happen to be pleasant. That's not the way happiness comes. Happiness is something, someone. And the consequence of this goes further. Look over to Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1, in verse number 7, says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The very thing over there says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and getteth understanding. And chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom. In essence, what he's saying here, when people, people of this society, this country, this county, or this city, when people leave God out of their lives, there is no possible way for them to be happy no matter what they accumulate, no matter what their lot in life is. They're not going to be happy. They're missing the key ingredient of what the Bible says is happiness. And it goes further. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. Look at verse number 20. Proverbs 1.20 says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. And the ideal of wisdom speaking here is a way of saying the very thing that can bring happiness is crying out to man. It's being presented to man on every corner. Wisdom is crying. And apparently nobody's listening. Verse number 21, She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gate, in the city she uttereth the words. And I'd say to you, we have people in every one of those places that tell people about Jesus Christ. The world's not interested in that because they perceive that it has to do with physical possessions. It has to do something with circumstances. What they don't understand is we have a multitude of testimony of Christian people who were incarcerated in dungeons and who died there among the rats who are some of the happiest people in all the world. And they had neither possessions nor freedom, and they didn't even have good circumstances. Then how can they be happy? Because happy has nothing to do with circumstances and possessions. It has everything to do with a relationship with God. And he is the epitome of wisdom and understanding. Verse 22, how long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and the fools hate knowledge. Verse 23, turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you, or unto you, and I will make known my words unto you. Now listen, wisdom is personified here. It's as if the point made is that wisdom takes on the personality of God. God is speaking. Verse number 24, speaking of wisdom, Because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. Now this is wisdom speaking. But wisdom personified as it were in God. Verse 25. But ye have set it naught, all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity, and will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as a desolation, your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me. But they, I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. And whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. You want to be happy? Take that passage into account. 
treat as wisdom the things that God wants to give and to share with mankind as being a good thing, a helpful thing, the very basis for my happiness. And if you're really honest with yourself and honest with God himself, you would find that within the context of your definition of happiness, if you know the Lord, it is all connected to your relationship with him. That's where true happiness is found. And that's why most of the world's not happy, because most of the world does not know Christ, does not have that relationship with Him. That brings us then to Romans chapter number 4, because if you recall this word, in, in especially verse number 9, our context begins this message today. Verse 9, cometh this blessedness then, and he starts talking about on what basis is this thing. Well, the fact of the matter is this blessedness, the word in the, the Greek there, in uh, in context means good fortune or happiness when you use the word blessed it's a word that carries with it well off and well-being and it also means happy well the fact is that means these two words in this context then cometh this happiness how does this happiness come well part of it's already been explained in romans chapter 4 for instance as we would tell you verse number 1 it says of romans 4 what shall we say then that abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found and then in verse number 3, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. With verses 1 and 3, the first thing you'll understand is that Abraham discovered it. He discovered justification by faith, and in discovering that, he discovered what happiness was. Blessedness of God. He discovered it. That's what it says, verse 1. He found it. He found that. He realized it, came to the realization of that. But it goes further. Look at verse number 6. In verse number 6, it says that David described it. Verse number 6, even as David also describeth this blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And David said it in Psalm 32, verse 7 says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8, he continued, Blessed or happy is that man to whom the Lord will not impute or count sin. And that's what I said a few moments ago in introduction to our course. All your sin has been paid for. And blessed is the man, the woman, the person, the fact that God will not impute sin to you again. He will not put sin to your account again. It's already been put on Christ's account. Well, what happens when you sin? Well, first off, if you do not confess that sin, he'll chasten you. That's a given. He chasteneth every son that he receiveth. And no chastening for the moment's pleasant, but it's beneficiary. It's important. It's necessary under the circumstances of training. So the fact of the matter is that, that here you have... Abraham who has discovered it and here it is David who's described it and today we come to what Paul does Paul discloses the details he explains justification by faith and especially one aspect of it but he's also explaining something of what happiness does not come happiness does not come by rituals it does not come by doing things to earn God's favor. And that's what you're going to get into in verse number 9 of chapter 4. When he comes along and asks the question, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision, that's the Jews only, or upon the uncircumcision, that is the Gentiles? The fact of the matter is, that's the question that he places on the table. And by the way, one huge part of the blessing of salvation by faith is freeing us from this works mentality that so many false religions have. 
Well, you can, you can, and you and I both need to understand that we're free from this mindset that we have to keep on doing something in order to keep our salvation or in order to tell somebody else they got to get saved. Here's what you got to do. You got to keep, keep the Ten Commandments. You got to be in church all the time. You got to read your Bible every day. You got to be baptized by immersion. And you got to quote John 3.16 at least three times a week. I mean, the fact of the matter is you don't have to do anything to go to heaven. Jesus Christ paid for your sin debt. You can go to heaven by simply believing God. And that's what Abraham did way back over there in the book of Genesis. Abraham went to heaven and trusted Christ the same way you and I trust Christ and will go to heaven. He did it on the basis that God spoke and Abraham believed. That's exactly how every sinner goes to heaven. He does not go to heaven by doing things for God, by serving God, working for God. Service is all after salvation, not before not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. How in the world do you express mercy? Because when somebody takes you at your word, God says, you take me at my word, I'll have mercy. And the Psalms are full of that statement. I'll have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And His attitude is that when you believe me and take me at my word, I can have mercy. You're trusting me. You're believing on me. Some people present when Paul wrote this epistle evidently asked this question. And then when I read the answer that Paul gives in Romans 4 and verse number 9 and following, I believe this is the question they ask. They said, Paul, if Abraham, who lived before the law, and David, who lived under the law, were both saved by grace through faith in God and received his righteousness, then pray tell why were they circumcised? Surely circumcision made some kind of contribution to their salvation. Certainly circumcision had to have some benefit here or otherwise they'd have never done that. Well, let me remind you as I reminded myself when I looked up a couple of historical facts. The first is that in the book of Jubilee, which is in the Apocrypha, it is required of the Jews that they be circumcised in order to be children of promise or covenant. Here's what it said, and I quote, Everyone that is born the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day belongeth not to the children of covenant, but to be destroyed. The ideal is that Jews believe circumcision was an absolute. You had to be circumcised to go to heaven under the Jewish mindset and the Jewish belief. Well, that's no surprise when you come to the Bible and the New Testament, in fact, just after the early church was getting going in the book of Acts. Look, for instance, Acts chapter 15, and you know this passage if you've ever dealt with circumcision before. Acts chapter 15 is the great passage concerning the Council of Jerusalem. Every Christian ought to know about this because this is a perfect illustration of somebody trying to tack on something to salvation that, in fact, is not to be tacked on. And there's a tendency of that. There's an idea of saying, well, things are going so bad and Christians are not living for the Lord so much, I think we need to tighten the noose a little bit so just the very few are going to get in. No, that's not the answer. The answer is that salvation by grace and the preaching of the gospel still will bring about the eternal salvation in man's heart because it is a work of the Spirit. As a people, as a church, we don't have a right to put more restrictions on God's plan of salvation. That's absolutely blasphemous. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel we have, not to make a new one so we can try to purify the sainthood. That's not what it's about. God will deal with His people. Anybody who's been saved by the grace of God, if they do not live in accordance to His plan for their life, believe me, He'll chasten them and bring them in line as any good parent would. But it's not up to the New Life Baptist Church or to any Bible church or any Christian to set a new standard and tighten the bolts a little tighter so we can keep out the riffraff who may be giving us a bad name. You see, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Guaranteed issue. 
It's not that he might be. He could be, possibly. He maybe should be. No. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's an absolute. And the absolute reality is if anybody has really, truly, absolutely been born again, saved by the grace of God, they're going to be changed. And it may take time for them to change in conformity to the likeness of Christ, but they will be changed. And the change has already begun immediately at the new birth. That is a part of it, the starting of it, the beginning of it. And it won't be finished until we cross the finish line to get home and we receive our glorified bodies. But the fact is, here in Acts chapter 15, notice just a few texts pulled from the passage. In its context, Acts 15, verse number 4. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Look at verse 5. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to, be, to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Look at verse 6. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. There was such a ruckus brought about about this matter that they said, okay, we'll look at it again. By the way, nothing wrong with looking at Scripture again. That's a healthy thing. There's just a problem with it when you have an absolute, unequivocal statement of the Scriptures and then somebody just keeps pushing it in the other direction. And that's what these guys were doing. And so consequently, Paul and the other, these, uh, these apostles, excuse me, that met on this particular occasion, they said, okay, what we'll do, we'll look into this matter. We'll consider this matter again. Look at verse 7. And when there had been much disputing... Peter rose up and said unto them, Men, and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as unto us, as he did unto us. Verse number 9. And put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. So that was the conclusion drawn, the decision made. And then they decided, well, we'll tell you what we do. We need to tell the brethren because the word's getting around that the Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved. We need to get this word out that that's not true. So in verse number 24, the culmination is, for as much as we have heard that certain went which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. The point is that these apostles who had been entrusted with the truth and responsibility to perpetuate it had been misinterpreted. The Pharisees wanted to put a little twist on it. They wanted to add a dimension to it to say, I tell you what, okay, Gentiles can get saved, but here's the deal. They have to be circumcised and they have to keep the law of Moses. If they don't do that, they cannot be saved. We will not accept them. And so the apostles come along and said, no, no. Peter says, first of all, I want to remind you that God called me to go down there and preach the gospel to these folks. And he did not tell me to give them a new gospel. He did not add restrictions that he didn't add to us. And he knew their hearts as he knew ours. And he purified their hearts by faith the same way he purified our hearts by faith. And in essence, Peter says, there is absolutely, unequivocally, no difference in how men get saved. And don't you dare start thinking there isn't, he said to those men and the others about the brethren. I tell you what we need to do. I think we need to write a letter and send this letter out to all the people who may have heard this false teaching and get the Gentiles back on board to know that they do not have to be circumcised in order to be born again and saved by the grace of God. That's what they did. They sat down and constructed a letter and they wrote that letter and sent it out into the areas of Malcolm and folks who received the message were corrected concerning this false teaching that was picked up. 
Now listen, in our day and age, you'll pick it up every once in a while. Years ago, and Mac, in fact, I caution you about music. Music is still a big communicator of false teaching. False teaching. Years ago, of course, there were music when I grew up in the South and uh, in Southern gospel music and a lot of things that were going on. And we sang in a quartet I did. And one of the quartet songs that we sing was, If anyone makes it, Lord, surely I will. Boy, you talk about arrogance. Goodness gracious. I mean, after all, if anybody's going to make it to heaven. I, you ever heard people say that? said, if anybody made it to heaven, he made it. Boy, you know, let me tell you something, my friend. It ain't any he, it's him. If anybody made it, him, Christ is the one who made them make it. It's not on us. It's not our goodness and our greatness and our ability to work and serve the Lord. That, that doesn't say, surely. No, 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 no. You missed the whole point. That's not based on works. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work. So it's a private matter of what they did in their heart. Did they believe on Christ? Or were they trying to work their way to heaven? But other music, music says, uh, I'll see you in the rapture. And then it would list some things if you did. I'll see you in the rapture some sweet day. You remember such, such a song? Sure. And it says, if. And it gave a list of things you had to do. If you did those things, you get to go to heaven. You'll forgive me. That's heresy. That's heresy. You're not going to heaven because of what you did or what you had done to you. You're, doing, you're going to heaven because of what Christ did for you. In simple childlike faith, believing Him and trusting Him brings that salvation home to your heart. Here in Romans chapter 4, back to it. Look, if you would, in verse number 9 again. Romans 4, verse 9. Cometh this blessedness, this happiness, then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Here's the thing here. Mankind has this inborn tendency to depend on at least two things. And if you'll note this about people and talking with them, and also when you read your Bible, you'll notice these two things that we have this tendency for. And one of the tendencies is, is a perceived goodness. A perceived goodness. You know, you'll talk to people and say, well, I'm not a bad person. You ever hear people say that? I'm not a bad person. Oh, yes, you are. That's not easy to say to them, but let me tell you something. Somebody said it before I did, and I hope you haven't forgotten it. And then when I preached on it, I was hammering hard at it, and, and I was afraid then that we would forget it because our society hates it. Back over in chapter 3, you remember? Look back. Chapter number 3, look at verse number 10. Look at Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. It starts out, verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. That's the first statement. Then verse number 10 starts. As it is written. It's written in the Psalms several times. Psalm 14 and, uh, and I think other passages, 53 and whatever the Psalm says. This, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not a single one. Verse 11, there are none that understand it. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all, are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not a single one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues they have used to deceive. Poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then let me tell you, somebody turns around to you and say, I'm a pretty good person. You can just laugh. You'll forgive me. There ain't no such creature on this earth as a pretty good person when you're talking in standards of God's view. No way, Jose. 
Romans 3, 10 through 18 is exclusive, exclusively clear that it's all who are ever born into this world. No exceptions and no exclusions. There are no good people in this world. Man's heart is desperately wicked, deceitful, disgustingly so. And all it has to do is touch the right button and you can prove it. I mean, people look pretty good in church. But you get them in the car and have the least bit of any kind of conflict, and I mean the sky just somehow opens with explosions of words, attitude, actions. Some people come to church on Sunday morning in such a sordid mood that it is no wonder the spirit's quenched in a service like ours. Fighting and fussing and shoot anything that moves, you know. And how in the world they expect to hear from heaven, I have no clue. But the fact of the matter is there are no good people. And yet it's an interesting thing that inborn in all of us is this first concept or perception that we're pretty good. That's our first problem. There's a second thing, though. It's, it's this perceived fact that if I do religious rites, religious deeds, something related to religion, then I can be okay. Well, Paul has, has touched on this, and now he gives, as I call it, the, the death blow. He really sticks a dagger in the heart of that when you come to this passage. You see, in verse number 10, notice, if you would, the crux of the matter is tied up with Paul's question. In verse number 9, it was a question. Cometh this blessedness upon the circumcision only or only uncircumcision also? The question then makes a statement or declaration. Look at verse 10, Romans 4. How was it then reckoned? Now, you'll notice here, the whole thing turns on these two questions. There are two questions. The first is how, and the second is when. And you don't want to miss that because that will help you understand his point. And he makes a good one. How was it then reckoned? Well, obviously, the question one, the answer is by faith. By faith, just like it was with Abraham, just like it was with David, just like it is with everybody else. God's word is spoken. Somebody believes it, and they are given faith, or given, as we would say, salvation. And it is by grace, through faith, that you're saved. So that's how it comes. It is reckoned by faith. And the point is, it's not reckoned by works. It's reckoned by faith, and faith alone. God speaks, I believe, and I'm given salvation. The second question is when. When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? That's the question. And might I tell you, the crux of this whole issue rests on that. Here's the answer. It's several verses, and I'd recommend you write them down right beside this verse. Because if anybody ever questions this business about uh, the circumcision being a basis of salvation, or if they ever question about baptism saving people, this is where I'd run to. Here's the point. First off, to give the answer, and the Bible gives a clear answer, it's this. Number one, it is in Genesis 15, in verse number 6, that we have the original statement concerning Abraham and his faith. Genesis 15 and verse number 6, it said, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's important. Genesis 15, 6. You ought to make a note of that. Secondly, you ought to note Genesis 16, verse 15. Genesis 16, 15 says, And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. Verse 16, And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. That means that he was 86 years old when that son was born. That's the second fact. Fact number three is Genesis 17, verses 24, 25, and 26. This is important. Genesis 17, 24, 25, 26. Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin in the self 
same day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son. So Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old. Here's fact number four. That means that Abraham had God's righteousness imputed to him. He was saved, in other words, 14 years, 14 years before he was circumcised. 14 years before. You count these up and say, isn't that 13? Well, I'm allowing a year for conception. I mean, but that doesn't say that the moment that he believed, immediately he and his wife had a relationship and his son was born then nine months later. It didn't say that. I'm giving him a year in there. So let's assume there is 14. And by the way, there could be 20 years in there, but we know there at least would be 14, 13, and so forth. See, point is, in this context, under these circumstances, that's the statement made. Now here, this means that in the conclusion drawn that circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with getting God's righteousness or getting saved, as it were. And it means the same thing today as it did then. Meaning that if you were to conclude that baptism in our day and the Lord's Supper would answer to circumcision, it would simply say that baptism and the Lord's Supper does not provide salvation, but is both very important to those who are. You see, it doesn't provide anything. When we come to baptism, those folks who come and say, I want to follow the Lord and believers' baptism, it does not mean that those people are going to get saved when they get wet. It means rather that these people who have been saved by faith want to obey the Lord in baptism. And the ideal of that is to, because it certainly identifies them with Christ and the cause of Christ. And the Lord's Supper has purpose within it, but it is not saved. So in this particular case, what was important about circumcision? If it did not save, look at verse 11. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believed, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Verse 11 tells you. Just explain it. Break it down simply. First thing you need to see is there's two words there that will give the key. You ought to underline them. The first one is the word sign, S-I-G-N. When you look at the word sign, you can think of any sign. You can be traveling from here to Greenwood, and you think there's a sign on the side of the road. It says Greenwood 9, 11, 10, whatever miles. You can look at it this way, and it'll say a sign on the side of the road. It'll say Columbus, X number of miles. Well, first off, you understand the sign is not Greenwood. The sign over here is not Columbus. It'll tell you how to get to Columbus. It'll tell you how many miles to Columbus or how many miles to Greenwood. But the sign is not Greenwood, and the sign is not Columbus. You get the point? Circumcision is not salvation. It simply made a point of directing people toward it. It was a sense of identifying where or what, who they were. And in this context, it's no different. Circumcision was a sign of physical, racial mark of identification to the Jewish people. And Paul is saying, in essence, that's okay. And that can continue. All right. Circumcise your children. No big deal. But you understand circumcision doesn't save anybody. It somehow projects the idea that it down the road somewhere, even to those people who were not circumcised, which verse 11 refers to, who are Gentile people who just had faith. They didn't have circumcision. They just had faith. He said, then that makes Abraham the father of all of them. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Why? Because the circumcision was just a sign. Baptism today does not save people, but it does give a sign to other people that I'm identifying with Christ. Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. I identify with that by going to the waters of baptism. I'm buried, and I raised to walk in newness of life. Same point. 
There's a second word. It's the word seal. Verse number 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. When you say that there is no value in a seal apart from the fact that it authenticates something, a pre supposes something, and that is that there has to be something there to authenticate. So there is a sign. That's evidence that there was something happened. And in the case with circumcision, it was a, a fact that it happened. It took place, but it was a sign. It pointed to something. And here's a seal. And this seal says, and if it were on a document, we would realize that a seal was always affixed after. You affix the seal after the document is written and after it has been signed. Anyway, folks in this room who are notary republics, and in our notary public. And the ideal is that if they are going to get your signature, they need to see you sign it, and then they'll fix their seal thereafter. They're, they're, technically, they don't let you take this somewhere and come back and say, yeah, I signed it right down here. They say, no, I need to see you sign it. I need to see your signature on this line as is required, and then I can put my seal on it. The seal is to simply make the statement that this is a bona fide, legitimate, real, authentic fact. And that's what this matter was. For every believer, at the moment of salvation, we too are sealed. Not sealed with circumcision. Not per se. Ephesians chapter 1 said, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. You see, the seal of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer in this room is God's guarantee that you belong to Him and that you will get home. The Holy Spirit indwelling you is God's down payment, as it were, on His relationship with you, and I call it an, an advance on eternity. An advance. He's giving us an advance on eternity. And the Holy Spirit that indwells us is that advance, is that guarantee that assures us that I belong to Him. Here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, circumcision in Abraham's life confirmed his justification, although it did not confirm or confer his justification. And that's important. You see, a sign points to something. A seal guarantees it. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are outward demonstrations, reminders of an internal reality. Neither of these things has merit to save anybody, but both of them are important to save people. There's something else. Communion for the believer, as we observe it here, calling it the Lord's Supper, is a collective corporate symbol of our relationship to Christ. Baptism is an individual symbol of that relationship. That's why every Christian ought to be baptized. Every Christian ought to be baptized. If we Baptists do anything, we make a mistake in that we let people who talk about baptismal regeneration run us off from the importance of baptism. Same way about the Lord's Supper. We allow our Catholic friends and the Mass and all the things they do with what's assumed to be the Lord's Supper make us Baptists a little bit shy about it, afraid that we somehow will attach to it some importance that's not there. But there is an importance to baptism. There is an importance to the Lord's Supper. And we ought not let other people push us off of the importance of it simply out of the fear of contaminating it or polluting it by some other false teaching. Baptism is an important thing, and every person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior ought to be baptized by immersion, pure and simple. Every person who knows the Lord as Savior ought to be a member of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church so they can sit into a service and have communion with Him, be a part of it, and a relationship that can grow into that where their responsibility to serve the Lord Christ in a mission field can be done. 
All that's important and all that's accounted in this text of Scripture. Quickly, look at verse number 12 before we close. In verse number 12, lastly, he says, And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. He's talking about Abraham now as the father of the circumcision. He's the father of all them that believe. Verse 11 said, and now verse 13, or verse 12, excuse me, says, He's the father of circumcision to them. And he goes further, who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. That is, that he got before he was circumcised. Don't let the wording trip you up. He says here, racially, Abraham is the father of all the Jews. It also says because he was saved by faith before he was circumcised, he becomes the father of all who are truly saved. He's the father of all believers. Abraham is. And that's exciting to me and exciting in this context that he's the father of all the believers. And the fact is that that's because he was saved or he, he trusted Christ before the circumcision came along, before the requirement of the law that came along. People were saved before Abraham. Nobody doubts that. That's for sure. The Bible declares that. But what the Bible is saying in the context of verse number 12 is that the way of salvation was made more explicit in the Scriptures, more so with Abraham than anybody else. Everybody believes that Lot was saved. He's called just in the New Testament. But it doesn't say, follow the example of, of, of justified Lot. It doesn't say that. But it does talk about Abraham being in that context. Father Abraham, a man who had set an example, as it were, he believed God in simple childlike faith, and he's saved by the grace of God forever. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved. It is not by ritual, it is not by religious resolve, but it is by receiving the truth and believing it. And believing what God says in simple childlike faith. Can't get any simpler than that. I read a few weeks ago about... Um, some old gentleman out in the uh, out west somewhere. He was a sheep herder. He had a violin, and it was told that uh, this violin was the only thing he had in his cabin that you know provided him with any enjoyment. He didn't have a he didn't have any uh, instruments. Other, I think the the radio that he had was set on a, about one station that he could get any information from, and that that one thing was all he had that radio. And and because much of it was talk, he didn't enjoy that. And and so he had a violin, and he loved to play it. But one day he realized that this violin was out of tune. So what he did was he he thought, how in the world can I get this violin tuned? There was nobody for miles and miles and miles around. And I am told that the basis of the story is absolutely true. So what he did, he got an idea. He got the idea that he could get a letter. It would take a few weeks, but he could get the letter out, and he get it down to a place that was several miles away. They then would pick it up and take it to a, a local station, a radio station, which he could get. So he wrote down one day the call letters of the station, and he got their address and what have you. He wrote this station, this what he called a desperate idea, and he asked them that on a certain day... At a certain hour, they would simply sound the tone A. And he said, I'll be listening, and when you sound the tone A several times, I'm going to tune my violin to that. Well, he wrote the letter, and he had some doubt whether they'd do it or not, but at a certain day, at a certain hour, he listened to this radio station. And sure enough, this radio station sounded the tone A. And he sat there until he got that violin in tune. He got the thing sounding right. He played some music on it, and boy, was he happy again. An interesting thing about this lonely old sheep herder, as he were, heard the tone. He tuned the violin, and once again, he had music in his cabin. Now listen, when I read that, the first thought that came to my mind was this. Man is out of tune with God if he's not saved. 
if he is saved, he can somehow get a little out of tune by virtue of him uh, either not following God's directive or stepping out of the boundaries of God's will and God's word. And somehow man will then begin to behave like he's out of tune with God. Now this morning in this service, maybe you are not the happiest camper in town, but maybe you're not the most sorrowful either. But you do know in your heart of hearts, one, that you've been saved by the grace of God. But you realize that something is not quite right, and you're not quite sure what is not right. Let me encourage you this morning to understand a couple of things. One, that if you have been saved, you are saved. If you have been saved, you are saved. You do not lose your salvation. Security of the believer is an absolute. That's not something that even is doubtful in the Scriptures. Anybody who honestly searches them and seeks the Scriptures can see that. That's a given. So if you're saved, genuinely born again, you're saved, period. That's a given. But it may be that your behavior is not matching up to what you say you believe. And that has to do with you personally, your will to do. And I know how it is. You know, we fight off this thing of will about a lot of things. Uh, some of you may be dieting. Dieting is a matter of the will. <clears throat> it's a matter of the will. You have to make up your mind, and you've got to do it. You may have some other vice that you're dealing with for the new year, and you may have made all kinds of resolutions to deal with that kind of vice. The fact of the matter is you're going to be dealing with your will. But unless your will is submitted to His will, you're out of tune with God. And no matter how hard you try, you're not going to get the job done if you and God are out of tune. Happiness comes by virtue of man and God being a right relationship and being in tuned with each other. There'll be no music in the old sheep herder's cabin until the violin is tuned to what the sound should be. When it sounds right, it's in tune. When your life is right, it's in tune. When your life is not right, you're out of tune in a biblical sense. So here's a simple question. One, it's vague and generic. Are you happy this morning? Are you happy this morning? In the secret recesses of your mind and your heart, if you could get aside and answer that question honestly that nobody else in the world would know, never know. I mean, because there's this idea that, well, I'm, I'm expected to be happy. I'm so-and-so, I'm expected to be happy. So I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy. You know. But if we could get you alone and nobody would ever know the answer to this question, are you happy? What would your answer be? No matter how many times people said to you, Happy New Year. It won't change what's reality. Two or three words won't make things better when you know, in fact, that it's you and God that's out of tune. We're not on the same page, not heading in the same direction, not submissive to the will we know. This morning, the question is very obvious. If you're not happy, you don't have to look far to know why. Something between you and God is not right. And I'm not going to get into, and we don't need to make a big deal about happy versus joy and all that. You know, the Bible speaks about happy, and you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about happy. I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm not talking about possessions. I've already made that clear in the message. I'm talking about the things and the way that God defined and explained happiness. It's knowing and having a right relationship with Him and knowing that I'm on the same page with Him. And if I'm in tune with Him, then there's no reason my life would not have a reflection of God Almighty in it. 
happiness is a reflection of that relationship. Are you happy? Second question is this. If you're not happy, have you just concluded you never will be and therefore you're going to leave it as it is and do nothing about it? Or do you face what's making you unhappy and say, this is what's wrong and this is what I must do to deal with this? And the longer you put it off dealing with it, the deeper the unhappiness will get. Happiness won't come back just because you want it back. It will be a back, an act of your will in conformity to God's word that will bring back the joy to your heart. David, after he had sinned, said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Some of you may have lost that. And I suspect if you've lost it, you know exactly where you left it. And this morning I would urge you and exhort you as a believer in Christ that you go back and you get it right where you left it. The very moment that you took the turn that you should not have taken, made the decision that you made that changed your life forever and robbed your heart of the joy and the peace that comes with it, I'd urge you this morning to go back to that place and pick up that responsibility again to do what you ought to do in order to have that kind of relationship with the Lord. Is your life in tuned with God? Could you expect God to bless you this year and use you to make a difference? If you're here this morning and there's never been a time in your life where you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I can tell you, my friend, that you'll never be happy chasing the butterflies of this world. These are elusive butterflies that fly all over the place and offer all kinds of things. You remember this. Sin is a counterfeit killer. It looks like it will provide you with everything your heart desires, only to laugh at you when you have pursued with all your might to get it. And somehow just it just didn't do the job. I'll let you in on a secret. It never has, and it never will. Man's heart was made with eternity in mind, not sin. No matter how much sin you can get into, and if there are sins that you haven't heard about that you'd like to try, and you got a list or a book and you tried every one of them, there'd still be an unfulfilledness about you as an individual because sin will never fulfill the heart of man. It takes something bigger than that. And the thing that man's heart was made to receive was a right relationship with God himself. And that brings happiness. That brings an entunement with God. And that brings a usefulness for the cause of Christ. This morning, do you know him? Have you believed on him? And are you in tune with him? You think about it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. and Thank you for the admonition that it brings to us. The challenge that it presents to us. And the truth that is forever the same. Thank you that the message of your word does not change from one week to the next or one month to the next or one year to the next. It is forever settled. It is true forever. This morning, I pray as we come to the close of this service and we have our invitation, I ask you, Father, to work in all of our hearts, mine included. Help us to consider, are we in tune with you? Are we on the same page with you? This morning, is there anything that stands between us and you in a way that our lives are not enjoying the blessing that we should be enjoying by your design? 
And Father, most of all, obviously, the most important matter is the issue of salvation. We talk about it so often around here that it could very easily become a contemptible matter with some. It could be that they challenge us that we talk about it so often, so frequently, that when we come to the invitation, they don't even think about it. But this morning, I'm asking you to cause our hearts to think on this thing. Have we really been saved by a simple childlike faith? Have we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and believed God for what He said about salvation in His Son? And Father, make sure in our hearts by Your conviction of this truth that we're not depending on something else and Jesus Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone, faith and faith alone that is true salvation. So work in our hearts and work in our midst in this truth and deal with us according to Your pleasure. And help us to make the decisions that you've ordained for this hour. Help us to comply with you, to cooperate with you in what you want to do in and through us. And especially we pray for any who are here without Christ. They've never believed on Jesus Christ as Savior. They've never made a decision that could revolutionize their life. I pray help them to know that all of us have been there, done that. We too one day woke up to the reality of the deception of life and what it offered us. And the hopelessness of life without Christ. It was all done by the conviction of the Holy Spirit bringing to our hearts and our minds what we needed to do. And what we needed to do is what our friends here may need to do who've never done it, and that is believe on Christ. I pray that the invitation begins. Help all of us to be obedient to what you'd have us do, and especially our friends who are here without Christ, that they may come to him in simple childlike faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 in your hymn book. Just as I am, we sing the first stanza. And don't uh, take it for granted. If you're here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then let me urge you and encourage you to simply step out and walk down to the front, and I'll meet you here and ask you a simple question. Why have you come? And you can state that case very straightforwardly. I've come to believe or trust Christ as Savior, to be saved. Someone will take you to a side room. A man will take a man. A lady will take a lady and show them from the Scripture how they can know for sure, for certain, that when they die, as die we shall, that we'll go to heaven. And not only what's future for us and benefits, but how we can live presently the Christian life in a way that brings others to faith in Christ and how that we can live our Christian life, as it were, influence our own family and the families that live nearby us. We can have an impact on our community. We can make a difference. But it begins by knowing Christ and knowing Him well. So if God has spoken to your heart this morning, I beseech you, I challenge you, don't walk out of this building until you have confronted your need of Christ and believed on Him. I hope you will. 282, verse 1, let's sing and you obey the Lord. Would you together please? Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart this morning, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Let's sing the second stanza, would you? Verse 2. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? 
Thank you very much. If you'll bow your heads, we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We never doubt it. We believe that it is true, every word. And we believe with all of our hearts that it never returns to you void. We believe you have purpose for the preaching of the word. And we believe you have purpose for this message and the message we've heard in Sunday school and the one that we'll hear before the end of the day. And though we do not see visible results in a service, we leave that to you and your cause. We ask you now to bless that which we have heard to the believer's hearts and help us, I pray, to be doers of the word. Help us to conform to the truth we've heard today. And may we be different from having heard it. Bless again as we'll return to the evening service. Bless our choirs. They practice at 5 and 5.30 men's prayer and then 6 o'clock for the evening service. Speak to our hearts. Bless your word and give glory to yourself through our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Amen.